uh, let's go. Okay, so we are in the third paragraph of Shema. Speak to the Jewish people and say to them, and they will make tzitzis on the corners of their garments for their generations. And they shall place on the corners, um, on, they shall place on the tzitzis that are on the corners of the garment a string of techelas. So that's what we spoke about the last two weeks. The first week, more about the string or the strand, and the second week, more about the techelas, the blue. So today, um, topic one, and we'll just we'll see how far we get. Topic, topic one is to finish the discussion of techelas. I wanted to just talk a little bit about techelas because we don't have techelas. Meaning when we look at someone who's wearing tzitzis, usually the tzitzis we see are just white strings. Really, one of the strings, it should look like eight strands, which are four longer strings doubled over, and one of those half strands should be dyed with the color techeles. But we don't see that. Now, the truth is, especially in Israel, you will occasionally run across somebody who is wearing a blue string tied onto their tzitzis. And I'm sorry. And so the question is, that's okay, you can put your feet there. <laughs> and the question is then, sort of where did that come from? I'm not going to talk about that so much. And how come it doesn't seem to be done? Meaning, why don't we wear strings of techeles? And if some people are wearing strings of techeles, how come everybody isn't wearing strings of techeles? Okay. So first of all, this goes back all the way to the Tanhuma. Okay, so this is the is associated with the Gemara, right? But already, already then, I mean, I'm not sure exactly when this statement is made in the Tanhuma, but you're talking about somewhere in the period of time, certainly not later than maybe the times of Rabbi Akiva, right? You're talking about a time that's very close, maybe a little later than that, but very close to the time of the Beis HaMikdash. Not long after the destruction could probably be the latest date of this statement, which is, the Achshav ein lanu ela lavan. And now we have only the white. Shehatcheles nignaz. The, the blue color, the sky blue color, mm-hmm. has been hidden from us. Okay, we know about other things that are nignaz. The world was created with a, some kind of much stronger and more spiritual light, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu, nignaz, stashed away. It's something that is precious and stored and uh, put away, not out in the open for everyone to see. Okay, so we're not talking about something in recent years that we don't have to us. It has been a long, long, long time that we're saying we don't have techelas, that techelas has been hidden from us. Okay. I think one thing we could say is that when we talk about the third paragraph of Shema, and when we talk about the, the theme of techelas, in particular as it is part of the third paragraph of Shema, it's an expression of a desire and a yearning to do Hashem's will. It kind of sums up that whole concept of what this is all about. I, the, maybe even because I've stumbled how badly I want to do Hashem's mitzvos. And I think it's worth pointing out that there is perhaps <coughs> a special pain that in this mitzvah of all mitzvos, we're spending all the years of Golos unable to complete, to perfectly perform the mitzvah. You know, we say we could do the mitzvah of tzitzis, the white part is a complete mitzvah on its own, and the techeles is another mitzvah, but nonetheless, there is an expression within our performance of tzitzis, even when we do it as well as we can, that I feel incomplete and I wish and I desire to be able to come closer to you, Hashem, and I'm being held back. There's something in the way. So the something in the way can either make us give up and walk away or something in the way can make us want it even more. And it's just something to point out that like, 
of all mitzvahs that there's a piece of it that we can't do, <coughs> there's, a, there's a, a sort of an exquisite pain in the fact that it's the tzitzis. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. She might want her glasses. Okay. So the Mishnah Brura explains. Now the Mishnah Brura, of course, is the Chafetz Chaim's halachic work. Right? So the Chafetz Chaim. Um, I'll tell you something. Many, many years ago, Rabbi Mishkovsky came. Do you remember? Uh, he, where did, Rabbi Mishkovsky from Krach Hasidim came to Venice. And I remember we had a meal with him, I think at John and Jane Medved's, because Elchanan was a very small boy. And he said, what's his name? And my mother said, his name is Elchanan Svi Feivel, and he's named after my, great, my grandfather, Elchanan Svi Guterman. Rabbi Mishkovsky remembered him. So it's like really stood out in my mind, you know, that <laughs> when we had that meal. But I remember him giving a Devar Torah in the shul on the beach, in the upstairs, you know, which is now sort of the kiddush room or the kids' room. But then we used to always have kiddush up there, and we always had shalashudas up there. Mm -hmm. And at shalashudas, he spoke. And he said, among other things, it was always very funny when he spoke, because he would speak in Hebrew, and Ben Marom would translate. But Rabbi Mishkovsky knew enough English that he would listen carefully to the translation and make corrections <laughs> if the translation wasn't exactly what he meant. So Rabbi Mishkovsky said, as I, as I remember it, and I was quite young, I was maybe 14 or 13 at the time, the way I remember it was that he said that his father had come to the Chafetz Chaim, and said, we really need a sefer like this. We need a, a sefer that summarizes up halacha lemaisa, what to do. In the same way we needed the Shulchan Aruch to be written, and at the time it was written, people said, well, why do you need a Shulchan Aruch? That's not how you paskin halacha. What you do is you go to the Gemara and you work your way through, you know, all the different various Gemaras, and you come with Psak halacha. This is like a a crutch. This is like a baby version of Psach Halacha if you're going to go and just paskin most things, you know. But it was the right thing to do. And he said, we need it done again. It's been hundreds of years and it's time for a, you know, Mishnabura. And the Chavetz Chaim said, I don't know if I'm the person to write it. And Rabbi Mishkovsky said, you should be the one to write it. And there was, I guess, some resistance. He says, fine, I'll write the first chapter and show you what I mean. This is, this is how I remember hearing this from Rabbi Mishkovsky. <laughs> Why did I bring that up? Oh, introducing the Mishnaburah. Okay. And then, anyway, the rest is uh, legendary. Okay, the Mishnaburah. So this is the Chafetz Chaim's halachic, what's the word? You know, uh, yeah, it, but it's, uh, it's not, it, this is an incredible achievement, right? funny, though, because we call him Chafetz Chaim. I mean, people do call him the Mishnabura, but you could say the Mishnabura was written by the Chafetz Chaim. You wouldn't say the Chafetz Chaim was written by the Mishnabura. Okay. The Mishnabura explains that we do not have in our hands, in this day and age, the ability to keep the entire mitzvah of tzitzis because we do not have techelas. What is techelas? What is this dye? In other words, it's not that it's a certain color and as long as the tzitzis are that color, that's good enough. That's not good enough. It only has, the trellis is a very specific dye that happens to create that color. But if you don't use the right source for the trellis, then it, that's not the mitzvah of trellis. The mitzvah of trellis is only from the correct source of the coloring. What is trellis? It is the dam hachilazon, it is the blood of a, some kind of sea creature. Chilazon nowadays means a snail. I don't know that it's particularly a snail, although you do see that people who are trying to figure out what chilas is tend to focus on different types of like, I don't know if they're exactly crustaceans, these like shelled animals, mm -hmm. little shelled creatures in the sea. Litzvoa mimenu, from which to die, shnei chutim shel Two, okay, this difference of opinions, whether it's two strands or one strand of the tzitzis, according to Rashi and Tosfos, or chut echad, or one strand, according to Rambam. Kifi mitzaveh ha-Torah, as the Torah has commanded us, v'nasnu al tzitzis ha-kanaf you shall place on the tzitzis of the corner of the garment a strand of techeles, blue. 
So what is Tcheles? So the Gemara in Melchus says, Tcheles is the blood of a chilazon, of a snail or sea creature. Gufo domelayam, whose body is similar to the sea. Uvriaso, obreso, I don't know what it means. It's appearance is what it means. Domeladag, it looks somewhat like a fish. Now, I think it can't be like coincidental that you're going to say this is domelayam and not be reminded about the tcheles, which is domelayam. I mean... It's got to be the same concept, right? We say that Tcheles is similar to the sea, and the sea is similar to the heavens, and the heavens are similar to the heavenly throne. So we just told you the Chilazon, its body is somehow similar to the sea. And it's not just the color of the Tcheles that's similar to the sea, but its actual source is in some way similar to the sea. And that is the end of my expounding on that topic, because I actually have no idea in what way it is. Okay. I'm probably not the only one since this has been hidden from us. It's difficult to say. Maybe if we could see, take a look at one of these chilazons, we would have a better idea of what that means. Okay. The ola echad l'shivim shana, once every 70 years, which, which doesn't have to mean every 70 years exactly. I mean, it could be like cicadas every 17 years, bam, out they come. You can count on it. You can schedule not to have your weddings outdoors because you know they're going to hatch. But... I don't think, it's seen, not, not just I don't think, it doesn't seem that when the Gemara says once every 70 years, it means exactly once every 70, 70 years. It means once every very long number of time, you know, once in a lifetime kind of event. It happens, it's an event, but it's not necessarily that you can count 69 years and put it down on your calendar that that's exactly when it's coming. It could be. We know there are cycles like that, but it doesn't seem like it is possibly because it's the number 70. Once every 70 years, it rises up out of the sea. I don't know. I don't know what that means. You know, is that like grunions? They come up, they lay their eggs and flop back into the sea? <laughs> I don't really know. Ubedamo, with its blood, sovin tcheles. You dye the wool. You dye the wool to be the color of the chilazon's blood. That's called tcheles. Lefichach damav yharm, and therefore its blood is very valuable. It's an expensive product. Because you can only get it once every 70 years? Maybe. Maybe because it's hard to get or maybe just because it's in demand and you get such a small amount from any one that if, you know, there's royalty, because presumably, you know, you could come up with a way to harvest it. It says about, um, I guess that's the bracha of Zivulun, which is just a great line to say. Um, but what it means is that it's the beaches have like valuables hidden in them. So one explanation of that is that they have this chilazon, meaning at the, you know, near the edge of the shore. Maybe it's underwater, but you could still scrape it up like with oysters and pearls. Pearls are pretty expensive too, even not every 70 years. And even now, now the culture, like still rather expensive because it lives in the water and each one is only one little bit. And I imagine it's just, that's what it's describing, that type of expensive just because you can get so little and if a king is going to want to you know dye an entire garment in Tcheles then all of a sudden like you know there isn't that much around Rashi says in Shemos Tcheles is Tzemer Tcheles can mean the color but over here Rashi kind of defines that Tcheles could be defined as wool that is dyed with the blood of the Chilazon meaning the Tcheles can refer to the wool that has been dyed that color to the fabric not to the dye. And he says its color is yarok. Now, yarok, we usually translate as green. But that doesn't... I'm not an expert. I once saw, and I would love to come across it again, like there's a very deep halachic discussion to try and understand colors when someone has named them a long time ahead of you. Even adom. The, the colors that we say now, okay, adom is red, and yarok is green, and tcheles is some kind of light blue... Right, but, but really a, a turquoise color, that could be also yarok. Right. Just to give, like, we've mentioned this example before about how different colors, the names of different colors and how, where you break the line between categories of colors can affect how you see them. So I'm sure that I mentioned in Japan, what we call a green light, they call a blue light. <laughs> the traffic light is red. I don't remember if they say yellow or orange. Israelis call that orange what we would call officially amber, but yellow, right? We say yellow, they say orange. Japanese say blue. We say green. 
okay? <laughs> so the light has turned blue, you can go now. We say the light turned green, you can go now, right? Because really the difference between green and blue over there is pretty fine. And it's a little bit of a question of where you draw your line. So the fact that Rashi over there, excuse me, uses a word for the color of Techeles, and that word we would call green, and Techeles nowadays we would call light blue, there's no inherent problem with this. The, the blue greens, the yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm saying like <laughs> what, what, what Rashi was saying exactly by the green and what the Torah means exactly by the treles doesn't, wherever exactly that point is for treles and Yarok, I don't know, but that's not a difficulty. That's pretty like straightforward kind of thing. Like, you know, I don't know, like somebody can show you and then you'll know. And our experience of colors anyway all depends on your eyeballs and the backs of your, your retina. Like, <laughs> everyone sees color differently. Some density could appear blue, It can be, right. It can also be a hue, like the intensity of the color. There's some, so I'm not scholarly about colors, but I know there are people who say that a dome can itself be like a very, can be more a question of the depth of the color than the redness of the color. So this is not such a simple, there are people who have some expertise in this, but it's not a common knowledge, and I don't really know what it is. Um, I do know that we all see colors a bit differently. It depends on, on your rods in the back of your eye. So I, we, you know, we have an infrared technology, and there was one time we used to carry a little card, and you shine the light against the card, and if the infrared light is on, then the card lights up. It glows. It changes color. It interacts with the infrared light so that normal people could see like, how do you know if you're out of battery or if the light's off? I mean, if the, thing, if the product doesn't work, if the prototype doesn't work, how do you know if that's because the light isn't on at all or because it's not working? So we used to carry a card. And one time we pulled out this card to check, and a woman that we were working with said, well, you can see that it's on. And we all looked at her, we're like, what are you talking about? You can't see that it's on, it's infrared light, it's invisible. She said, when you click the button, it glows orange. It happened to be that she could see into the infrared spectrum. And we found out that there is some percentage of people that can see into some distance in the infrared spectrum, but we had just never come across that, and it was kind of an oddball thing to suddenly have someone say, well, I can see that it's on. And we're all like, no, it's invisible light. I just heard another story about a woman who has sort of the opposite of colorblindness. It's a genetic um, combination. Her child is colorblind completely. But in this woman, in the mother, it's a, it came out expressed as um, she sees many more colors on the spectrum, down into ultraviolet, that other people don't see. And so she sees a lot more vividness, and she also sees a lot more color. Like I might look, you look at something and you'll see that it's generally one color with some shades, but she'll see also like waves of blue and stuff around it, and so it's... It's a more intense world, but it's also very stimulating. She says her, her favorite color is white. <laughs> it's just like not so demanding, not so exhausting to look at all the time. So there's definitely, you know, even if someone would show you here's what it means, it doesn't mean that everyone sitting around the table sees the same color, but at least we tend to consistently see colors the same way. It gives us something to work with. Okay. Just why it's good to define it as the color from the that comes from this particular <laughs> creature. That's right, because otherwise, clear. yeah, that's what it is, and that's what it is. That would be clear unless, as long as you know what the creature is. Unless you know the creature like hydrangeas, it depends on you know the <laughs> what they eat. That's right, flamingos. That's <laughs> right. You know, so maybe it has different colored blood depending. That's on. right. Well, that doesn't seem to be suggested here, but yeah, it's interesting. You're right. Has anybody speculated it might be like the horseshoe crab? Yeah, has blue blood. They haven't sort of shaped like that's you know, very interesting. I haven't heard thing. anybody suggest the horseshoe crab, possibly because it's not indigenous to the Mediterranean. But um, maybe it was. Maybe it was. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. They've suggested a lot of other things, but not that one. Maybe you finally hit on it. Unfortunately, halachically, it wouldn't help if you had hit on it. But it would be interesting anyway. <laughs> okay, so continuing with the Mishnah Bura, while the street sweeper cleans our street. Okay, so the chilazon is some type of tola'as. Tola'as means tola'as is a I guess you'd say a worm. Okay? 
But I think over here what it means is invertebrate. I think, I think that would be the correct translation in this context. Hadome ladag, because it doesn't have to be exactly a worm, like according to this species. Hadome ladag, which is similar in some way to a fish. Gufo dome layam, its body is similar to the sea. I think it's possible that what the Mishnah Brewer is doing is giving, he's, a, he's uh, saying that what makes its body like the sea is that it's maybe soft, like it doesn't have bones inside, then its body would be like the sea. I, I don't know it, that that's for sure what he's saying. I didn't do a deep investigative study of Tchelas and Tchelazon, especially since it's, from the point of Limur HaTorah, there's possibly a value but it's not even certain if you look at what the halacha comes out to be. So, like, anyway, not to mention, I'm not mechoyev in Lima Torah, but, <laughs> let, you know, so I'm mechoyev to, like, you know, it's, it's good if I learn Torah. Like, it's like putting on tzitzis. Great, bonus, wonderful. Right? I want to learn because I want to know and I want to understand, but I better focus on the things that are relevant to me. And going from Kriyashma already out to tzitzis, and now moving out from tzitzis to the aspect of tzitzis, which we can't fulfill, and now we're going to move on to that, to exploring what kind of fish it is. I think it's possibly getting outside the scope of the parameters of our focus on davening. Its body is similar to the sea, and its appearance is similar to a fish, and it comes up once every 70 years. Okay. And we, and we die from its blood, the tzitzis. And it is found in the Mediterranean, in the area around Eretz Yisrael. And the Rambam says, in Hilchos Tzitzis, HaTcheles, the Rambam is nearly a thousand years ago. Okay, I think the Rambam lived from 1240, something like that, around 12, uh, 11, 1140 to 1200, something like that is the Rambam. Okay, ha, the Rambam says, HaTcheles eina mitsuya Tcheles is not found in all times and in all places. Meaning when you're talking about does the halacha apply nowadays, it's not like with the Beis HaMikdash where we say it doesn't apply now because we don't have a Beis HaMikdash. The mitzvah is applicable, but the tcheles is not applicable at all times and all places because you simply don't have it. And the Sifri indicates that the Sifri, again, you're talking about the Medrash, this is very ancient, that the Chilazon was Nignaz Leosid Lavo. The Chilazon, this sea creature, has been hidden away until the future time, until the Messianic era. It's very, very interesting, right? We, we kind of saw the beginnings of this in the Chafetz Chaim statement that in the future generation, in the times of the Mashiach, the generation will be exceptional in its keeping of the mitzvah of tzitzis. And we also pointed out that lest we feel dismayed by the fact that we see both very good tzitzis <laughs> nowadays and also a certain amount of weakness in the area of tzitzis nowadays, that it's encouraging to remember that what Revolbi says about chesed is probably a principle that's true in general, which is if you see that something um, there's a very strong power in a negative direction, like of cruelty, that means there's also a very strong power opportunity for chesed. So if you see, I think we could, it's safe to apply this to tzitzis. If you see that there's a very strong neglect of the mitzvah of tzitzis, sort of active neglect, not just like, oh, people don't remember about it the way it was with shotness for years. People kind of for, weren't in the habit of looking for shotness. That's not the story with tzitzis. There's a sort of active neglect of tzitzis. There's a power there. Then that means that there's also a power for the positive, for being strong in tzitzis. And this itself may be a hallmark of messianic times. Okay. And the Chavetz Chaim, furthermore, would sigh, sadly, about this lack in our lives. Now, the Chafetz Chaim was a Kohen, of course. The Chafetz Chaim was sort of unofficially understood by the generations in which he lived. But, you know, sort of if Mashiach came, probably the Chafetz Chaim would be the Kohen Gadol, was sort of the way people thought about him. And being a Kohen, he actually um, made a push for learning Kodshim, for learning the parts of the Gemara and the halacha and the Mishnah that, re that relate to the avodah and the Beis HaMikdash. 
that, you know, Mashiach is coming. He will be here very soon. And what if nobody knows what to do, right? Like, it's a good idea. And so he had a kolel, the idea being that Kohanim will come and they'll learn the halachos and they'll know what to do. And you got to learn, okay? And he would sigh and say, you know, even if we could build the base Hamikdash, we couldn't do the avoda because while Techelas does not prevent us from doing the mitzvah of tzitzis, not having Techelas in the clothing of the Kohen Gadol would in fact prevent the clothing of the Kohen Gadol from being intact and usable, and therefore you actually couldn't do the avoda. So it all ties together that we're, we're poised and waiting for this techelis to show up at the end of days. It all comes together. It's like the para aduma that way, right? We kind of need it all to come into conjunction so that everything can happen. All right. Now, I printed out a translation. There is a rabbi. I've mentioned it maybe before. Rav Shlomo Aviner. He's a very famous rabbi in Israel of the Chardal community. That's the Haredi Dati Leomi community. He's very religious, very halachic, very admired posik, definitely very Zionist. So you won't hear most Haredim quoting Rav Shlomo Aviner, but okay. And he has, I, you got to know, he, he has... He gets between 600 and 1,800 text message Shilas a day, to which he replies, <laughs> for the most part. Um, and they translate, his students translate a small subset of those and post them every week on a website. And they're really very interesting. And the way he answers is so sharp and so on that it's really a pleasure. It's kind of like almost an addictive Pleasure to just read the way he answered people's questions, you know? Okay, so what I did is I printed out a translation from a student of his um, of an article that was printed of questions and answers relating to this question of Techelis. And especially, as you can imagine, given that he's sort of the leading posek in the Datilomi community, and in the Datilomi community there is a group of people who have tried to revive the mitzvah of Techelis. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel, they have these trips where you can go and like, you collect muric shells and you hammer them and you like to make your own Techelis die and, and you will, right? There's this idea that people have tried to investigate if they can figure out which is the Techelis, which is the chilazon, then you could have techelas, and then you could do the mitzvah properly, which, by the way, is a love of the mitzvah. And also, perhaps, in the background, an idea, sort of like machon hamikdash idea, you know, like maybe if we could get it in place, then we would help precipitate the Mashiach's arrival by having it in place. So, the question asked, should one include the modern sky blue techelet strings created with dye from the murex snail in one's tzitzis? So like I said, I'm not going to go into, there's a long, there's a whole separate sort of investigation that, that is really interesting, but you could do it yourself online very easily, um, which is how did people come to decide that they think that this is the correct snail? And it is a very interesting topic. Um, and there have been a few rounds of this, meaning there was about 100 years ago, there was also a Hasidish Rebbe who felt that he had found, there's a few rounds, maybe three different bouts in the last couple hundred years of people believing they have identified this now. So since what we're going to read here is why that's not helpful, then we're going to skip the part about which snail. But it's an interesting history. Okay, so here's his answer. For more than a thousand years, we have not had techelet. So it is clear that such a halachic innovation must be affected by the greatest Torah luminaries of the generation. This is not going to be a bottom-up, you know, a grassroots <laughs> revival of a mitzvah. That doesn't exactly, like, if you haven't had it for a thousand years. Yet we see with our own eyes that almost all the great rabbis of our generation do not place techelet in their tzitzit. Thus the halacha has been decided. And if someone conducts, he's saying, even if you don't go ask the rabbis, if you look around and you see that the greatest of the poskim of your generation are not wearing techelet, then you have a visual proof that they have determined the halacha is not to wear them. Okay. 
Yet we see with our own eyes that they have not. Thus the halacha has been decided, and if someone conducts himself publicly counter to their practice, that constitutes arrogance. Okay, that is, in other words, religious arrogance as though he is smarter and more righteous than they. In other words, I mean, halachically, it's, you border on hamor halacha bifnei rabo. One who teaches Torah or paskins the halacha is better. One who paskins the halacha in the face of his teacher. This is a very serious mm-hmm. problem. Okay? So if, now, he qualified it. He said if someone conducts himself publicly counter to their practice. So I, I'm just going to insert here. I don't remember if he talks about this, but if a person, let's say, would tuck their tzitzis in, which has other issues because you want to see them, but that would not be a violation of publicly going against the psaq of the leaders of the generation. There, you see a lot of people who wear them out loose, but there is such a thing as people who wear them, but they wrap it, let's say, around their belt and then tuck it back in, so it's almost not noticeable. That's a type of humility there. So do some people. I'm just pointing this out. It's, it's borderline. It's, it, but it's, it's a serious consideration. For someone to say, well, I see Rav Yashiv and Rav Scheinberg and you know, Rav Shlomo Zalman, they didn't wear treles on their tzitzis, even though these people have their, tzitzis, their treles factory going. But I know that I should. I know better. This is, there's an arrogance there that is not a very healthy thing. Thus, I shall not clarify whether to add trelet or not. Which is also an interesting, right? Meaning, who am I to speak over the people who are greater than I? But rather, why the great Torah luminaries reject it? He's saying it's not called on me to poskin whether to do it or not. What's called on over here is to say, so how come poskin greater than I don't? From their lengthy deliberations, one can discern three main avenues of rejection. Number one, the precedent of a thousand years. Number two, unwillingness to rely on proofs to reinstitute a tradition. These are two different points. And number three, the weakness of the proofs that have been offered. So regarding one, the precedent of a thousand years. When the Regina Rebbe first identified a particular animal, the cuttlefish, as the source of treles, he quoted the halachic response of the Hagaon, of Hagaon Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik of Brisk, the Beis Halevi, who had written that if the murex snail had been known and the means of production of dye had been known the entire time that the Jewish people weren't using treles and they hadn't put it on their tzitzis, then that would be basically a masora that it's not the same snail that the Chazal were talking about. He's saying this is the, the murex is not a rare creature. Anyone who lives near the Mediterranean is going to know. So let's say the Jews were exiled from Israel, even though there were always some Jews in Israel anyway. But there were still Jews in, in Rome, in Italy, and there were Jews in North Africa. And they also had muric snails all over the place, and they weren't using them. And they were, you know, you can connect this back to a time when people knew perfectly well what Tchelas was, and they weren't using it. So... There's a sort of um, an unspoken tradition that it isn't the murex, because this is a common and commonly known animal. It's, that's not an absolute statement, but it's, it's an important one to keep in mind. He said, but, but separate from that, even if we bring as many proofs as the sands of the sea, it will not help against the practical conduct of the Jewish people. If we look and see that the entire Jewish people behave in a certain way, then we say they are, pro- they are the children of prophets. They are B'nai Hanaviyah. They are descended from prophets. And if the entire nation is acting in a certain way, this must be correct. Which is interesting, because we don't generally use as an approach what they do in advertising. A million Chinese can't be wrong. You know, this one. Or... We, we don't use the bottom-up approach. That we, don't, we won't use a bottom-up approach to, rein, to instating a new halacha. But, to, but if we look to see how it was done and we see that this is how the Jewish people does it, <coughs> then we can say we don't mess with it. Now, this goes back already to the time of Hillel. Right? They had the question, what happens when Erev Pesach is on Shabbos? That means you have to bring the Korban Pesach on Erev Shabbos. Can you bring the knife? What do you, what do, you do with the Shechita knife? And finally, Hillel said, let's just watch and see what people do. Somehow this halacha had been forgotten, which is also very, very strange. 
it's not a thousand years of distance. I mean, how many years can it be from one year, one time to 10 years, 15 years since the last time you had an Arab Pesach on Shabbat? I mean, how long could it be? I don't, I don't know exactly how the halacha became somehow forgotten. The cycles are, are very inconsistent. It can go for 40, 50 years and not happen, I, and then happen. I mean, we like have a 19 year cycle. I, I know, but I've, I've looked at this before. You can this. go 40, 50 years between, really? Yeah, I didn't know then, that. And then you can have you it get happen four three times in a decade, right? <laughs> That's very interesting. It's a very okay. strange. So let's say maybe over 50 years we could start to believe that, that somebody couldn't remember exactly how their Rebbe had taught the halacha. So even if they thought it was a certain way, they didn't have a straight Messorah. So when they were missing a Masora on the topic, instead of trying to logic it out, Hillel finally said, you know what, wait and see what the Jewish people do. And what they saw was that the people stuck their knives into the wool of the sheep and let the sheep bring it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was what they did. And they said, that must be the halacha, right? If this is, mm-hmm. <laughs> people, they remembered how their father did it. They remember how their grandfather did it. This is how they're accustomed that Hashem, in general, guides the Jewish people as a whole in the direction we need to go. Okay. Then he quotes Rav Avraham Shapira quoting the Beis Halevi in a letter of his included in a different sefer and added that the very fact that the Murex snail was known but was not used to make techelis proves it's not the techelis of the Torah. It could not possibly be the proper snail existed, and the Jews were not trying to find them and keep using it. Meaning somebody would have gone and exerted themselves to go dig them up if they had known that that's what it was. So even if for some reason at that time it was hard to get a hold of, somebody would have been keeping it going, and they didn't. Practic- only if practically speaking, no Tuchela's die existed would there be cause to clarify and look for the right one. So he said, our basis of the sages' words, Israel, if they are not prophets, still descended from prophets. It cannot be that the holiness of Torah would fail to enlighten them to keep the mitzvah as commanded. Meaning Hashem would have, one way or another, it would help us to do the mitzvahs. The Jewish people as a whole don't just drop entire mitzvahs unless it actually really was completely hidden from them. If they really can't find, if they're looking and looking and looking and they know what they're looking for and they can't find them, then the mitzvah could be dropped. But if it was actually at all findable, they would never have dropped the mitzvah. Rav Yashiv likewise quotes the Beis Halevi regarding contemporary use of the Murex snail and further noted that the Regina Rebbe's identification, he had said the cuttlefish, did not achieve acceptance. There's a lot of halachic reasons for that as well, but we, that comes down to the weakness of proofs part. Nor did the identification of Rav Yitzchak Halevi Herzog. So how do we know then if other people who were, who were Talmidei Chachamim, who were great rabbis, felt that they had identified the right species? And then, number one, we see that the Jewish people as a whole don't take this up. But number two, we see that the proofs were very weak, then how do you know that that won't happen again? We're going to come back to this on the weakness of proofs. Okay, section two, unwillingness to rely on proofs to reinstitute a tradition. So piece number one is that we say that looking back at the past thousand years kind of forms a tradition of its own that is consistent with what we see in Chazal, which is that this species has been hidden from us. Now, you still have the question, okay, but maybe now is the time it's going to be revealed to us. It's going to come back at some point, so maybe this is the point. Okay, so you still don't, you haven't answered that. All you've answered is saying, yeah, but if it's a common species that we see all the time around here, that's probably not something that was hidden from us. It seems to be right here. Okay, so the next question is then, if you're going to find a new species, how will you do that? So you're going to bring some kind of proofs. Like we have a whole list, which you'll mention, a list of the qualities of this chilazon that Chazal have mentioned. If you collect from all around those descriptions, like its body is in some way similar to a fish, in some way similar to the sea, right? You put all those together and you see, did you find, did the species somebody's claiming is the chilazon, does it meet those criteria? But is that a way, let's say it did meet the criteria, can you use essentially a scientific style proof to recreate what is a mesora? Mm-hmm. So as an example, let me just, before we go here, let's think in terms of what we're more familiar with, 
with, which is the kashras of animals. We just had Parsha Shmini two weeks ago, right? Okay. So what happens with the kashras of animals? The Torah gives us a list of animals. And people know, like, you know, this is a cow, and, you know, how do you know what a cow is? I don't know, because I've seen pictures of cows, and I've seen cows, and my parents, you know, you drove through Nebraska, and they said, that's a cow. I mean, you know, we have a cow in the backyard. You know what a cow is. You know what a cow is. But there's some animals like zamar. What is that? So if you look at the translations, even very ancient translations, 800, 900 years old, or more, 1,200 you'll see it's translated as giraffa, which apparently, I guess, must be from the Arabic as giraffe because it's an ancient, ancient word in the translations and well before English was around. It's a giraffe. And a giraffe, in fact, has the halachic, scientific signs of a kosher animal. It chews its cud and it has split hooves. So, and you have the idea that like the word giraffe and that word giraffe seems to be the same word. It's probably a giraffe. So why can't you eat a giraffe? Now, little kids will tell you, because you don't know where to shaft it. Its neck is so long. <laughs> but it's not true. <laughs> it's just a cute joke, which unfortunately people believe is halacha lemaisa, so it's not such a cute joke anymore. But that's just a joke. Because the place you shaft doesn't go by the number of inches from like the ears to the shoulders or something, it goes by, it's a space between two vertebrae, and giraffes just have really big vertebrae, but you would still shecht in the same place. I forget where it's between the eighth and ninth or something. <laughs> you still do, the shechita is still in the same place. It's just that the distances in the spaces are much bigger, that's all. So that's not a problem. You could check the giraffe if you could reach one, you know, you possibly have to lie it down or so. That's exactly how, you, you know, practically speaking it might be tricky, but it could be done. So people generally accept that the giraffe is probably a kosher animal. The problem is there's no Masora. There is nobody, there is no Jewish person who can tell you, yeah, that, that's the zamar that's in the Torah. Nobody can do that. There's nobody, they've tried to find, and there's even people who have sort of a hobby, a halachic hobby of gathering together the, because there are certain creatures like locusts and different things where the kashras depends on the misora, and therefore trying to find people to preserve this misora. Meaning, if I can find someone who can say, yeah, sure, no, sure, my grandfather used to have that kind of pigeon in the backyard. That's the pigeon that says in the Torah, you know, that was kosher, we ate that all the time. Now I have the misora because I got it from him. If he can show me, looking at the animal, that that's what it is, now the misora got passed on. There isn't that with a giraffe. You can't eat a giraffe because it's not enough to have the physical sign of it. You have to also know, for, because you have a misora, that that's what it is. And that, that's a halacha with kosher animals. Okay. Then how can we eat turkey? It's a big halachic shaila. The case of turkey is a very, very serious, it was a big question in the postkim. There were absolutely postkim who said, how is it possible, you can't eat turkey, it's forbidden. In the early years, now as far as I know, like pretty much people eat turkey. But it was absolutely when this sort of, you know, became like a new thing, people discovering these, this, this turkey in the United States and saying, how could, you can't have a masora on it, how could you have a masora on a turkey? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I don't remember, I have read about this, but it's many years ago and it's not fresh in my mind why, for the most part, postgame accepted that turkey is a kosher animal, a kosher bird. But, but it's a problem. But it wasn't just a simple thing because of this. Is it, I, I, it could have to do with, like, as a species, is it subsumed into another species, like with the chickens? I'm not sure. But that's, it's, you can't just eat an animal even if it has the kosher signs. So that's setting aside, that's a topic, let's say, that's more familiar to our minds that we can understand. And now let's have that in the back of our mind when we read this question of unwillingness to rely on proofs to reinstitute a tradition as an issue regarding chilazon and chilas. Okay. So Rav Yosef Dov quoting his great-grandfather, the Beis HaLevi, said it slightly differently. He quoted his great-grandfather a little bit differently. He says, since the tradition about identifying to chilas ended, since for many generations we have not known what the chilazon of our 
sages refers to, then even if we succeeded in restoring this information through technical scientific proofs and clear phenomena, that information could not enter our tradition. You can't enter something into Masora. It is impossible for us to pass legal rulings based on this information without a halachic tradition. In other words, it is, by the way, you see who he's quoting, the Beis HaLevi, so everyone, but once you get down to Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, you're talking about Psak Halacha in the Zionist um, modern Orthodox world for the most part. Okay, I'm just pointing this out. This isn't like a Haredi versus Dati argument happening over here. I just, I just kind of want to like frame it that way so you understand, like, you know, even though we're talking here about the Gedole HaPoskim of the Zionist world. In other words, it's impossible to reconstitute a lost tradition regarding a mitzvah object or a sin object via proofs, only via a continuing tradition of those who saw it with their own eyes. It's a little, okay. So this is a little bit different from the precedent of the previous thousand years because it's saying that even if you could identify what it was, you wouldn't be able to re-enter something into the Misora unless you could find, you know, some... Uh, tribe that's been living hidden from everybody else and that has kept this Masora going. But so far, that has not happened. That tribe would be suspect. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. It depends, right? Maybe. Okay. The weakness of the proofs is part three. So let's say you said, well, but eh, you, you think you could go according to proofs. The proofs of new identification are far from final. In the Mishnah and amongst the Chazal and the early Rishonim, uh, medieval sages is even before this, really, like the Geonim. We find seven identifying markers for what constitutes the chilazon associated with techelas. One, it has a shell. That's a Gemara and Shabbos. Two, the dye has to be produced from a living chilazon. Three, I should say C. This is ABC, so I'll go according to that. C, it emerges from the sea once in 70 years. In other words, rarely. Gemara and Menachos. D, it's similar to a fish, also the Gemara and Menachos. E, this is based on the Sifri and Zosabracha. Mediterranean house geckos, how he got the identification of Mediterranean house geckos, I have no clue. <laughs> but some kind of gecko bites it and it dies. F, its color is as black as ink. That's the Rambam in Hilchos Tzitzis. If we investigate the recently identified Murex snail, we find the following. A, it has a shell. So A, checks off. That's good. Gamar and Shabbos says it has a shell, and yes, this has a shell. B, okay, so B qualification, which was also the Gamar Shabbos, was that the dye has to be produced from a living snail. With a lot of snails, you do have to produce the dye immediately, but specifically with the Murex, you can dry it out and produce the dye much later. That does not fit the description of that the dye has to be produced from the living snail. What do they mean by, by living snail? So you, you extract the blood while killing it? I don't so know. It it's a good fresh? question. I, he's saying for sure that it would have to be at least fresh. Right. But I don't know if halachalamai said that means you had to extract it from the living. It doesn't sound like it because they crushed it. But, but he's saying that it's more than that, that with the murex you dry it out and you produce the dye much later. So that certainly, no matter how you read fresh or living, because... I'd have to go back, you'd have to go back to the Gemara and Shabbos, but very often the word chai, let's say with meat, can mean alive or can mean fresh. Basar chai can be raw meat. It doesn't, not necessarily alive. Okay, so I'm assuming that that's, it's one of those two. But either way, it doesn't fit. C. So C was the Gemara and Menachos, that it comes out of the sea once in 70 years, or very, very rarely. C, murex does not come out of the sea. It remains attached to the seafloor. So that's also a bit problematic. D was that it's similar to a fish, right? Its body looks like a fish. That's also gemara menachos. Oh, he says also regarding C, it's not at all rare. It's found in all Mediterranean seaports by the ton. It's used as a food item. So remember the Gemara said, therefore, it's very yakar, it's, its blood is very uh, precious. Yakar can mean rare or expensive, but either way, those two things are intertwined, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, supply and demand, I mean, this, 
but either way, meaning whether you read yakar as rare or yakar as valuable, it doesn't apply to a murex because there's bazillions of them. It looks like a fish. D, it does not look like a fish. There's no stretch of the imagination by which a murex snail looks like a fish. It looks like a snail. F, uh, E was that the geckos, the Mediterranean house gecko bites it and it dies. That was the sifri. E, it has a very hard shell. A house gecko cannot crack the shell. You require a hammer and substantial force. And F, its color is as black as ink. That was the Rambam in Hochositis. F, the dye that emerges from the murex is transparent and blackens only in the sun. And then he says, furthermore, that the snail itself is also not black. Meaning, if you're going to say its color is as black as ink, did the Rambam mean the color of the creature or the color of the dye? So if it means the color of the dye, well, the dye comes out transparent. It only turns black with sun. And if you mean the color of the creature, this creature is also not black. It's white. So those who support identifying this, this chilazon, the murex as the chilazon of the tzacheles do try to answer all these questions, but it's a, identification cannot be called certain. You can't say that even if you wanted in some way to use proofs of physical phenomena to prove to prove that the, the murex snail is the chilazon of the Torah, the proofs are not good enough that you couldn't say that you, you could be sure that that's the right animal. So we have to realize then that any scientific hypothesis has some degree of doubt. And anyone who wants to propose a new scientific theory with intellectual honesty has to state, according to the present state of our knowledge, because you may find out something new that will, that will change what you believe. That's the nature of scientific inquiry. That's not bad. That's just inherent to scientific inquiry, as opposed to, say, Misora. Mis I mean, this is the difference. So let us therefore conclude by quoting Rabbi Yoshua of Kutna in his response to Regina Revi. It's been rejected for 100 years. The words of the Ari agree with that, that there is no tcheles except when there is a base hamikdash. It has been concealed by heaven. Wow. Okay, this, this concludes volume 10. <laughs> could, could you um, give us that, that website where you get to Absolutely, I will look it up for you. And Emirates Hashem, next week, we'll start the next notebook and continue on to some, anyway, it's good to have like this little break here, and continue on to some more perhaps deep and demanding ways of, of thinking about um, the, the tzitzis and their effect on us, whether we're wearing them or not. Uh, although this could be pretty demanding too, when, when you take halacha lamaisa. <laughs>